with me please in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 Galatians the fifth chapter we are coming to the conclusion of our series of sermons on the Holy Spirit we're considering at this part of our series the evidence that is in every believer of the abiding and indwelling presence of God the Spirit. We have sought to define the biblical doctrine of the gift of the Spirit by which God grants to those who put their faith in His Son Jesus Christ the permanent indwelling of himself the Spirit. And now we are examining how we may know that he lives in us by looking at the biblical evidences of his indwelling. We've seen two of the three. First of all, we have analyzed to some degree the fact that in every true believer in Christ there is a perception and a regard for or a love for gospel truth, what we may call doctrinal orthodoxy, that to some degree resides in the heart and in the mind of every regenerate person. We also observed that in everyone who is a believer in Christ, there is a spirit, an ability, and a desire to serve the Church of Christ. There is something in every true follower of Christ whereby he desires and has a proclivity to give of himself to the good of the people of God in the church. And then in the third place, the evidence of the abiding presence and indwelling of the Spirit of God is what we've called the fruit of the Spirit, the ethical transformation that is the portion of everyone who is truly a Christian. And it is to that last evidence that we look this morning and we do so first of all by reading this passage in Galatians chapter 5 beginning with verse 16 
Galatians 5, verse 16 through verse 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are contrary the one to the other, that you may not do the things that you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or they are plain. Which are these? Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness idolatry, sorcery or witchcraft, enmities, strife, jealousies, wrath, factions, divisions, parties or heresies, envyings, drunkenness, revelings and such like, of which I forewarn you even as I did forewarn you that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, Against such there is no law. And they that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lusts thereof. Now again join me as we seek the Lord's help in sorting out this vital issue in his word. Let us pray together. O oh God, how weak we feel and know ourselves to be as we from the hearts of filth and self-serving would seek to sort out for your people such high and holy things as these about which we have read. Lord, we know and you know ourselves that we are unworthy even to handle such things in ourselves. And were it not for your own appointment, we would not seek to do so. Our Father, we cry to you in the name of our Savior, whose blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that you would now for his sake send your Spirit to help us to do that which we've been called to do. And we pray for unction from your Spirit that the matters not only of intellectual understanding of these things may be ours, but that our portion may as well be that our hearts are transformed more and more into the image of your Son. Lord, make these things to be what is clearly seen among this church and remove the remains of those things which are contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. Use our preaching to sort out the issues of truth in the inner man and cause, O oh God, the spirit of conviction to fall upon us. Send him upon us that we may know the spirit of grace and supplication. 
humility, teachability, broken hearts, contrite spirits, and the spirit of repentance. O Lord, we also would ask that you may direct our eyes as a result of what we hear to the only one who can deliver us from our sins, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he may become all the more precious to us even in the breaking of the bread of your word. Now, Lord, help me to preach as I ought to preach, and these to hear as they ought to hear, with obedient hearts, by your Spirit given in grace, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. My intention in examining this subject of the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the outworking of the presence or the life of the Spirit of God in the believer is to divide the study into two broad sections. First of all, I want to set this fruit of the Spirit in its theological or biblical or experiential category. Where does it fit in the experience of the follower of Christ? What is the fruit of the Spirit and where does it belong in the experience of a believer? So to set it in its category or to examine the category of the fruit of the Spirit. But in the second place, I want us to consider the biblical description of the fruit of the Spirit as we've read in Galatians chapter 5 and to describe what these elements are. On the one hand, what the fruit or the work of the flesh is and then, what is the essence of the fruit of the Spirit? Now, our purpose in this second part is not to exhaust the study. This study alone could take several months if we were to examine it. But that's not my intention. But merely to go through briefly these items and elements describing the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And then, if the Lord will, to focus at the conclusion of our sermon on the one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit at the end of the list self-control and the reason I want to do that is because I believe that that one can hone in our thinking to a peculiar missing thing in our culture something that is so typical of our day that it merits a more deep or a more focused and pronounced treatment as representative of the whole package that is spoken of as the fruit of the Spirit and then I hope to be able to draw out some applications and implications from what we've heard. First of all, then, let's examine together the category of the outworking of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And simply put, the place in the order of salvation or the experience of those who are saved through Jesus Christ which is occupied by the fruit of the Spirit, is the place of sanctification. The fruit of the Spirit falls under that general heading of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is not prior to conversion or possible without conversion, but it comes upon conversion to the heart of a saint in regeneration there is planted in him this thing which grows out into what we observe as the fruit of the Spirit. 
The scripture uses terminology to help us understand something of the essence of this fruit, the essence of this sanctifying work of the Spirit which shows itself or manifests itself in this lengthy passage regarding the fruit of the Spirit represented in these nine terms which are only suggestive and not exhaustive because he says, and such like. He's making no attempt to list every detail of sanctified living, but to show a good representation of what you'll expect to see in the life of a true Christian. And if you don't see it, you can know he's not a Christian. But some of the terminology are some of the categories in the scripture that help us understand the essence of this sanctifying work are the following. First of all, we hear the terminology union with Christ. We are in union with Christ. The Holy Spirit by has baptized us into Christ. The scripture says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And so we are made one with Christ. Then in Ephesians, we are told that we are members of his body. He gave himself for us. And we are identified by analogy as being flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. So that even the marriage relationship gets its ground in the relationship between Christ and the church. As the Lord gave himself for the bride, his church, she is made one with him. And so from that explanation, marriage finds its meaning. A man and a woman joined together, becoming one and experiencing the union and the unity that represents Christ's relationship to his church. So in our union with Christ, there's a hint as to what we mean when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But another terminology that helps us further develop our thinking in preparation to understanding it is the concept of conformity to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man that after God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. God has done a work in us when he saved us. And that work is a work of planting, no, of creating us as new creatures conformed to the righteousness and the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Conformity to Christ has been planted into everyone who is his. There has been a principle staked out in the soul, in all the soul of every true believer, by which he is guaranteed to become conformed perfectly to the image of Christ. And Christ's image has been stamped upon him, placed within him, and the scripture uses terminology of creation. That the new man, that after God, not only by God's work, but after the character of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So at the outset of the Christian's experience, he becomes one who by nature is in union with Christ and is conformed to Christ. But a third terminology in the scripture speaks of our life with Christ. 
in Colossians chapter 3, a very, a very precious verse that says, You died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so we see some hints by this terminology that something drastic, radical, and wonderful has been done by God in turning us from darkness to life. We are alive in God with Christ. We are conformed by God to Christ. We are in union, vital living union with Christ. Do you remember the Lord's terminology in John 15 where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch that abides not in me is cast away, etc. But he that abides in me shall bring forth fruit. The imagery of the Lord himself and the apostolic understanding of this principle is that you're not just one who has decided to become a Christian. You haven't joined Christianity alone. You've not just chosen a religion. You've not just studied the various religions of the world and decided that this one is the most logical or the one that has the most to offer or the one that seems to be most true. No, no. A Christian is much more than that. He has been really, actually, vitally united with Jesus Christ himself. And the imagery points to a result. If God has done such a thing, then you ought to expect that something of Christ's character should show up in this person thus united with him. If you look at a branch growing off a vine, you would expect that if you can identify the vine, the kind of fruit appropriate to that vine should be growing on the branch. A branch will bear the fruit that is in keeping with what is in the roots in the soil. If it's a grape vine that's planted in the soil, on the branches you'll no doubt find grapes. And it'll, they'll conform to the particular variety or species of vine that's been planted. And so it is with the saint of God. He shows fruit because he is planted in Christ united with Christ, conformed to Christ, alive with Christ in God. So let us define briefly the essence of this sanctifying work of the Spirit out of which comes the fruit we're examining. I'm borrowing here from some of the language of of Dr. John Owen and some of the others. Listen carefully as I read this somewhat lengthy definition. This is the essence of what's in the believer that produces fruit. It is a virtue, a power, and a principle of spiritual life and grace infused into our whole soul. Now, that's the first half of the definition. A virtue, a power, and a principle of spiritual life and grace infused into our whole souls. And that's what happens upon regeneration. When the Holy Spirit makes a dead sinner alive, 
he infuses into him this power, this virtue, this principle of spiritual life and grace. But there's a second half of the definition. And it is an abiding, or it is abiding unchangeably in them by the constant power of the Holy Spirit. Not only has it been infused into them, it abides constantly in them, unchangeably, by the constant power of the Spirit who's there. You see, there's two sides to it. There's the infusion of the principle. And there's the constant work of the Spirit in the believer to continue that principle abiding. And that implies, and we see in other texts of Scripture, that that's, there's more than just being able to point back to a time that I, showed, that I showed the evidence. If the Spirit is in, not only has He infused the principle, but He continues to operate so that that principle grows. And the manifestation of that principle increases to some measure in the life of the believer. We may also call this essence of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in this principle placed in us, as one has said, a natural instinct. It's according to the new nature. It's not the, the old man. But this new man has a nature. And there's an instinct in his nature. You can look at the animal kingdom and you see that animals do all sorts of marvelous and wonderful things. Studying the honeybee, studying the migration of birds, studying insects, studying the order of things. Many people ask, how do they know to do that? How does this mama, puppy, dog, who has her first litter, know exactly what she's supposed to do to care for them? Who told her? You, are you believing that she watched her mama and wrote, took notes and then went to class and studied it out and memorized it and then went to grad school on having puppies and later her puppies were born and she went back to her little book and she took the references and ran back and forth and said, we need hot towels, we need a basin, we help us. And that's not, you just see her doing what comes naturally. It's built in it and we call it instinct. And we marvel at the instinct. One of the best ways we can teach our children that the evolutionist is a fool. By pointing to these wonderful instincts that you can't put there uh, by accident. That someone has to have put there order and intelligence and proper behavior. But we look at it in the animal kingdom as instinctive. A dog can't help herself. And, and an otherwise very warm and friendly dog may bite her favorite friend if he comes too near the puppies. The day after puppies are born, her whole personality toward the family has changed. She's now got an instinct to protect. And nobody, nobody is allowed to get near them without a growl and maybe even a snap or two. There's, there's instinctive. Well, brethren, what we're saying is that in the true follower of Jesus Christ, there's a natural instinct to be like him. And he can't help it. He is so really Christ, and he is so really like Christ in this principle placed in him. He will produce the fruit of Christ in his life. You see what we're saying? A natural instinct. It's like sap in a branch of a vine. Christ is the, is the vine, and in that vine is sap. And that sap runs up into the branches, and that sap produces what you see, what you pick, and what you enjoy. 
And that's the principle of life. The principle of spiritual grace that's been placed in you. It's like sap. And that sap carries with it the proper nutrients to see that things continue to produce and grow in accordance with the nature of the vine. We may also call this thing a new heart, a new spirit. In the language of Ezekiel 36, God said that's exactly what he was going to do in the house of Israel. He was going to put a new heart within them, a new spirit within them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told that when a man is, is joined to Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Everything is new. In every part of his life, this principle of life and grace has been planted so that he can no longer function in the same way he used to function. A radical change. A new heart. Not just a reformed heart an adjusted heart, not just a turning over of a new leaf, but a new heart, a new spirit. And we may further define this as an habitual inclination of the new heart unto all the duties of obedience to God with corresponding opposition against all sins. Listen to me carefully as I elaborate the definition of the essence of this work of the Spirit. A habitual inclination of this new heart. An habitual inclination unto all the duties of obedience to God. That's what there is in the believer. A habitual inclination to everything God has commanded. I delight after the law of God in the inner man. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. I delight to do thy will, O God. And whatever point it may be expressed and manifested, that is the habitual inclination of every born-again person. Where that's not there, salvation has not occurred. Regeneration has not occurred. The Spirit is not dwelling. But it says not only an habitual inclination to all the duties of obedience to God, but also with a corresponding opposition to all sin. In other words, to everything that doesn't correspond to God's commandments. There's this corresponding opposition. The flesh lusts against the spirit, but the spirit lusts against the flesh. If you have the spirit of Christ in you, you are fighting against Everything the flesh is, and everything the flesh does, and everything the flesh produces. There is that in every soul joined to Christ. A resolute opposition to everything that doesn't conform to Christ. May we stop and make an application at this point. If there is one area of sin in a man's life, or a woman's life, or a young person's life, which that person has no intention of dealing with, which that person enjoys to the point that he does not hate it, does not grieve over it, does not intend to rid himself of it, and does not cry regularly to God to help him with it, that is as evidence that he is not this principle in him. If in every other area he's in agreement with God, but this one area, that's enough to prove he's under condemnation. Now, if that's...
causes some to tremble and say, well, then who can be saved? So be it. But the design of that statement, which is saturated with biblical truth, is to make the people of God work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It is to cause us not to take advantage of what we think. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. If in any area you have said that God's word on this issue is something I'm not prepared to deal with, you're not showing the fruit of the Spirit. Because what's been placed within us is a law for every part of God's law and a hatred of everything that contradicts it. Universal obedience. That's the essence. But the second thing I want us to notice about this category of the sanctifying work of the Spirit is that the principal work of this sanctification is to love the Lord with all your heart and soul. The principal work is to love God with all your heart and soul. That's a biblical statement. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and notice with me a very interesting verse from the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. And notice New Covenant concept in Old Covenant conditions. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed. And what will the result of that circumcision of heart be? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord's going to do a work of circumcising the heart. This is New Covenant language. And the Lord, when He does this work, it applies to Old Covenant believers as well as New Covenant. But in the New Covenant, it's much more apparent that that's the essence of the believer and his experience. When He does this work of circumcising the heart, the result will be you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Where you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, this work of the circumcision of heart has not been done. Where this work has been done, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What we're basically saying, brethren, is that the principal work of the sanctification of the Spirit in the believer is that he will fulfill the law of God. And you notice that in Galatians chapter 5, the apostle said, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're familiar, no doubt, that many take that passage as a way of saying that the Christian has no relationship with the law of God and the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God has no bearing upon the Christian and the Christian shouldn't think about it or worry about it. And if anybody preaches the Ten Commandments, he's a legalist. And churches that emphasize obedience and obedience to certain moral laws are legalistic and are missing the grace of Christ. And they'll go to Galatians to defend themselves. And they'll preach great, well, brilliant messages from Galatians to prove their point. You're not under the law if you're led by the Spirit. The Spirit has no reference to the law. And yet the list we read, which we'll seek to describe in just a minute, is a list that at every point is reflective of the law of God in the Ten Commandments. Every one of the works of the Spirit is a breach of some aspect of the Ten Commandments. And every one of the fruit of the Spirit is a fulfillment of some aspect of the Ten Commandments. So when the Apostle starts showing what it's like to be led by the Spirit, he describes obedience to the law. When he says what it's like not to have the Spirit, he describes actions that violate the law. So what happens when the Spirit comes 
he establishes in your heart a principal work, and that is to fulfill the law of God. I will write my law upon their hearts. What law do you think he meant? He didn't change laws. This was Jeremiah 31 in which this was spoken. I will write my law upon their hearts. So if you're saved, the law of God is written upon your heart in such a way that you cannot help yourself. There's a natural instinct to follow it and love it and pursue it. And some everything in you that's been put there by Christ wants to do what that law says. And it's not grievous. Herein is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. It's not the love of God that we keep his commandments, but wish we didn't have to. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the love of God when we keep some of his commandments and others we choose not to keep. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the love of God that we keep his commandments and resent them. Like the Sabbath. And look for text to try to disprove that it's binding on us. Brethren, that spirit of our age is evidence that the spirit does not indwell many who call themselves Christians. Instead of looking for opportunities to give God a day, to set aside a whole day to worship, they look for text to excuse their leaving the Sabbath. I would ask, why would you even be desirous of excusing that day to do your own thing? If you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, you ought to try to find an excuse for more days. Why ask the question, how much does a Christian have to give to the church to get fulfilled what Jesus expects of him? If you're filled with love for him, you ought to be asking, how much can I give without taking away from other legitimate responsibilities? How do I feed my family and prosper the church of God? How much can I give, Lord? Till you stop me. That's the spirit of one whose heart <coughs> excuse me, is filled with this principal work of fulfilling the law of God. <coughs> excuse me. But note also, in the third place under this category of sanctification, the end or the result of this principle infused. We saw the essence, that it's a natural instinct implanted and per perpetuated. The principal work is the fulfillment of the law, but the end of this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, said it at the conclusion of the verse, that you may live. In other words, this stuff put in us by the Spirit results in eternal life. And in those who do not bear fruit unto eternal life, they perish. If you will examine the parable of the seed and the sower, the Lord describes many who start out apparently right. They receive the word with joy. But afterward, various things enter in and stop that word from growing up into eternal life. The text we read in Hebrews chapter 10, the last verse, we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, who leave the faith they once professed, we are of those who believe unto the saving of the soul. The persevering faith that doesn't die because of the very nature of the thing planted within. If you start out right, you'll end up right. If you don't end up right, it's because you didn't start out right. If God does his work in the heart at the outset, 
it'll bear its fruit at the end. And the fruit is eternal life. So it says something of the necessity of this implanted virtue and principle of life. But I think quickly I want to lead you in an examination of the description of these things which give evidence as to whether we are in Christ and he is in us. There will be fruit and effects in the life of every person whose heart truly has embraced the gospel. In Titus 2, we are told that the gospel teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And the gospel fruit in us is that we be a people zealous of good works, peculiar to God, a particularly precious people, owned of God and showing the evidence that we've been changed. That's gospel results. The gospel doesn't say, the Lord knows you couldn't measure up to these rigid standards of the Puritans and the legalists, so the gospel has lowered the standards so we can let a few more folks into heaven. God was a bit frustrated with his previous standard. Many couldn't meet it. Heaven's going to be unpeopled if God keeps rigid like this. So Jesus has come as an afterthought of God, and God's lowered the standard so more people can get in. Isn't God gracious? That's not the biblical truth. The gospel teaches us to do the thing that the same strict standard always required. The difference is that in the gospel we are enabled to do those things. The old covenant never provided that. Which covenant they break? But I'll make a new covenant with them that's not like that covenant. They'll not break the new covenant. Because I'll put my law within them and write it on their heart. You see the difference? It's not just rules. It's rules that are implanted on the heart so that when the preacher enumerates them, the true people of God rejoice to hear it. Even when it shows their own nonconformity to it. It's one of the most comforting things in the pastor. To have the people of God say, thank you for exposing fresh sin to my soul. Oh, thank you for uncovering things I would never have known if the word of God hadn't been opened to me. And come out praising God for conviction. Rejoicing that they felt the touch of God on a wounded heart. Far cry from this generation of people who come to church and make statements like, Preacher, I don't come here to hear you yell. I come here to get my needs met. We're, you're supposed to make us comfortable, as one man told a preacher friend of mine. And as another, you're supposed to make us happy. It's a far cry from that. Brethren, they've got it all mixed up. You're never going to be happy unless your sins are exposed and confessed. He that covers his sins will not prosper, but he that confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the inevitable result of the implantation of Christ in the heart. So let's describe them. Turn back with me to Galatians chapter 5, and I want to run down this description. <coughs> and brethren, I've got to go down both lists, because I want you to see the contrast. You pray that I'll do it concisely. Now remember, what we're about to read is not a means unto your salvation, but it is an evidence of your salvation. We're not saying it's optional. 
But doing these things is not what saves us. You got that? These are the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the way you get the Spirit. It is not in conforming yourself to this list that you'll get God's blessing and get God's help and get the Spirit. It is because of God's blessing, help, and His Spirit that these things come out in your life. Let's keep that in our minds. It's vital so that we properly deal with it. Let's look at the list. The works of the flesh, verse 19, are manifest, and they're these. First, fornication. The word is porneia. Pornia, pornia. It means all manner of sexual sin that's rooted in an adoration and a worship of bodily sensation and pleasure. Fornication, all manner of sexual sin that has its root in the worship of bodily sensation. Secondly, uncleanness. Akatharsia. It's the general name for sexual impurity. And in this text especially, it refers to those unnatural practices that were typical of the world of that day. The wrong use of body parts in sexuality. Whether in or outside of marriage. The uncleanness. Brethren, let not the bed, marriage bed be defiled. You can defile the marriage bed in several ways. But in one way, you can defile the marriage bed by certain practices that have become notable among this sensual generation that make it unclean to partake of pleasure that God ordained. I will not be specific or explicit. Do I need to? And you know, it's a grievous thing that in most of you men, I don't need to. Because you've already known about it, read about it, and talked about it. That's where we're living. In a culture that is looking for increased ways to improve sensation. And which in even marriages, men manipulate their wives to do things against their conscience and against their better judgment and, and intuition that they're not sure what's wrong with it, but the men serve their own lust. Uncleanness includes that. It certainly includes as well Nero's practice of purchasing a 12-year-old boy, having a full state wedding, and bringing him to himself and marrying him before all of Rome. And then when he passed on, his successor also took the boy to himself. Full state wedding. Brethren, if these are the last days, so were those. And don't you kid yourself that our generation isn't rotted with uncleanness. In the third place, lasciviousness. The word in the translation I use, asogaya. And that literally means all intemperate desires, raging lusts, flowing gluttonous passions. A lascivious person is one who has an insolent contempt for public opinion. When nobody has long hair, he wants to have long hair. When nobody dresses in a certain fashion, he does. When it's inappropriate to get out and make a fool of yourself, he joins with the crowd marching down the street on television to make as big a fool of himself as he can. Lasciviousness. Shamelessly outrages public decency. That's the lascivious person. He acknowledges no restraints except his rights. 
Everything is his right. That's a lascivious person. Does it remind you of any that you know? Then idolatry. Now notice the first three have to do with committing sin with one's neighbor. Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. The next two have to do with committing sins directly against God. Idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery. The word idolatry is a transliteration. Idololatria. The first three of these things sins with the neighbor. These two sins directly against God. And those first three are almost always connected with these next two. That's why witchcraft is so connected with sensuality and sexual impurity. That's why idolatry throughout the Old Covenant and, and throughout history has always been connected with sexual practices that violate the law of God. Idolatry. Placing anything before God or in the place of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Depending on anything but God for our basic needs. Listening to any but God for the rules by which we must live. And looking to anyone to save us from our predicament other than God who is the only Savior of sinners. That's idolatry. Witchcraft. The word is pharmakia or pharmacia. Our word pharmacy. Pharmaceutical. It means the magical use of herbs and chemicals to produce desired emotional response, whether depression, elation, or indifference. That's the Greek definition. It certainly brings the thought to the drug culture and leads to this culture, which does not as much look to magical arts, but looks for the sophisticated development of man who has really gone not much further than the witchcraft of the old days. We don't believe in religion or magic. We just believe in the superiority of our intellect. So we go into our little brewing pots and our little mortars and pestles and we brew up the stew and we give them to people to try to manage their emotions. Brethren, if psychiatry, generally speaking, in this culture is not a priestcraft, I don't know what is. A person comes completely out of, out of line with moral integrity, and what does the psychiatrist do? He doesn't correct the roots of his problem. He gives them symptomatic change of his emotions. He, if he's manic, he calms him down. If he's depressive, he raises him up. And after six months, most of the drugs used produce the very effects they were designed originally to remove. That's a culture in which we live. We're in a drug culture legitimately and illegitimately. I'm not sure that the cocaine thing is, as big, is any bigger danger to us than what's in most medicine cabinets. Not because of the things themselves are the problem, but the way we approach the solution to our problems. Anything but God. And then another list, and this long list, sins against one's neighbor. The first sins with the neighbor, then sins against God, and then sins against the neighbor. Look at them. Enmities. That word means hatred. Either it concealed or expressed. You just seize against certain people. In the church, isn't it a sad thing to have somebody walk in the church and have brethren look at him with a little seething resentment or avoid looking at him because they get sick when they look at him. What a way to view your brethren. What a shameful thing. It's carnal and those works go to hell. Strife. Some translations render it variant. Eris is the Greek word. It means a fondness for quarreling. Just like a good argument. You look for it. You, you can't let anything sit. You've got to pick. You've got to correct. Somebody says something, you jot it down and keep a note of it, and you catch him as soon as you can. 
strife. Jealousy. The word is zeloi. Emulations in some translations. It means a bitter spirit of rivalry and contention. You look at another guy and you wish you had what he had. Jealousy. Strife. Bitter spirit. Rivalry. Contention. It's what you have to deal with in your children so often. And you must deal with it. Because it's the works of the flesh. And you must teach them that these kinds of things disinherit the kingdom of God. You must spank that foolishness out of them, teach it out of them, and cry to God to save them from it. Wrath. Samoy. It means a high degree of anger that shows itself in somewhat regular temperamental outbursts, explosions, where just you can't control it. Brewing right into somebody's face where you would use profanity and lose your brain and lose your, your equilibrium to someone that yesterday you loved perfectly. But out of a heart that's filled with this wrath comes these volcanic explosions. Factions. Erythiae. Another word for strife. But it comes from a word meaning mercenary. And it literally is about people who side up to their group because of their own self-seeking. It's what's happening when you, for the sake of gaining a friend, enter into gossip against the third person so that they have an agreement. In order to build this relationship, you tear down that one. Where in order to find common ground for our conversation, we have a mutual enemy. Faction. Division. The Castasii. It means to stand apart. Separation. And it also includes political and military seditions for unjust causes. Go not with those who are given to change, the Bible says. Division. Stand apart and separate yourself because you don't like the way the group is going and so you've got your own agenda. You may not show it immediately because you're, not, you're scared that if you stood up and made it known you'd lose so you start gathering your secret army privately. Disaffection of heart produces this kind of thing. Parties. The literal word is irises or irises or heresies. It means dissensions, sects, which are produced by choosing opinions contrary to revealed truth. Another way to see that orthodoxy is indeed evidence of the Spirit of God because the opposite of it is heresy. Not just orthodox, not just missing truth, but drawing into sects and groups because of your newfound evidential truth that violates orthodox and historic truth. All the cults are guilty of partying in this sense, heresy. Then envyings. And in some translations, the word murders are added. I think in the better, in the better manuscripts, murder is omitted, but murder always follows envy. Thonai, envies, where somebody has something you want and you wish you had it. Jealousy is when you think he's going to get what you have and you protect it. Envy is when he's got it and you want it. But envy does it not often lead to murder, hate, resentment. Cain rose up and slew Abel, envying his accepted offering. Then the last category, sins against yourself. Drunkenness. Not the disease of alcoholism, brethren, but drunkenness. The misuse of alcoholic beverages 
because of your own low regard for your bodily health and your violating of the sixth commandment that says thou shalt not kill and you by stages murder yourself. It would also apply to any other substantive abuse. Caffeine are all down the list. Those things of using food and drink or chemicals to induce response that I couldn't get through ordinary means to excess, this is the work of the flesh. And you don't, those that do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet your, your insurance premiums are paying for the disease of alcohol because our culture refuses to call it what it is and deal with the root of it. And they haven't solved it, have you noticed? Revelings. And this is often associated with drunkenness, but it's komoi. It's a word that referred to the Bacchian festivals, luxurious feasts, drinking parties, extending into the late night with loudness, unrestrained laughter, reveling, and often spilling out even onto the streets. All sorts of sporting events and the way people react in undue response, revelings. What shame it is to see what goes on in the stands of some of the football and baseball stadiums. That's in the daylight. This stuff originated in that generation in the dark. We've thrown off the restraints. A quick list. Now let's look at the positive lists of the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Agape. And you see how this, this stands against the sensual use of other people's bodies. When you love other people, you don't use their bodies for your sensational pleasure. The view of marital sexual satisfaction is not that the husband has a right to demand of his wife gratification. It's that she has authority over his body that he rendered to her due benevolence. And vice versa. Love gives. The works of the flesh demand and take. Against idolatry, because you love God. We define this as enlightened, benign affection to God and man. And I don't know that we need to elaborate much on this, having heard the series in First Corinthians 13. And the second, joy, kara, holy cheerfulness. Not flippancy, but holy cheerfulness. The fruit of the Spirit. Holiness is vital. But cheer is necessary to show evidence that the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. Brethren, if you know nothing of a holy cheerfulness, if there's not some of that in you, you know not Christ. He cannot live in you without producing something of that. Now certainly there are degrees. But let it be your aim that you're going to see by God's grace an increased evidence on your countenance of holy cheerfulness in your conversation because there's no glory to God if we create a som the sombrous form of people we can and call it reformed joy the second in the list peace irony the tranquil disposition which is induced first of all from the foundation of our peace with God and from our consciousness of knowing that we're right with God it's the peace of God ruling in the heart because we have confidence that we belong to him and are at peace with him. Tranquil spirit. 
not worrying about every drop of the hat, not anxious and panicky over every turn of providence, not neurotic. Those things are works of the flesh. Brethren, when a person is neurotic, we need to deal with the basic element of his heart and not give him drugs immediately. Find out what the roots are. And often the roots are the flesh. Long-suffering, macrosomia. It means patience under ill treatment, long-continued. Not 20 minutes. Not a couple of days. Not a couple of months. In some cases, years. And in some believers' cases, a lifetime. Patient endurance. Under ill treatment. When you don't deserve it. When it's wicked people doing it to you and they ought to be snuffed out. The Christian shows the fruit of the Spirit by being patient in it. Without anger or thought of revenge. Pastor, that's our too high a standard. It's the standard of the Spirit of God, and it's the fruit to some degree in every heart regenerates. Gentleness. Christotis. Kindness. Readiness to forgive and to relieve. And let me quickly caution you. This does not mean there is not a place in the Christian's life for holy indignation and the raising of the voice. The cults are experts at reproducing this picture of gentleness. Is not the Pope the picture of gentleness? But in his heart he despises the souls of an entire age. And the man who has the courage to stand up and oppose the lie of Babylon so that he may save a few little deceived sinners is not ungentle. He's the gentleman. Let us not be deceived. However, let us never use this as an excuse to be hard and tough and quick on the trigger because in the Spirit of Christ that's not the case. It's a mellowness of spirit rooted deep. It's slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, loves to forgive and let a guy off the hook for no payment, looks forward to relieving somebody under pressure. Fruit of the Spirit. Goodness! Agathosune, a disposition to oblige. You want to do it that way? Fine. Fine, huh? No problem. Whatever you, where would you like to eat? Some of us are too much that way, and you end up arguing over who gets to let the other one have his way. I doubt that we have too much danger of that. It is the disposition to pursue moral worth and the delight to oblige the other person. Husbands, it's time for some of you to shut your fat mouth at home and let your wife have her way. Some of the biggest arguments in marriages come over what TV show to watch because of the absence of goodness, a disposition to oblige. What a, what a rotten, immature culture we live in. And it's all throughout the churches. May God remove every bit of it from this place. Faith, pistis. And literally in this text, I believe the proper translation is what the ASV translated, faithfulness, fidelity. It's used that way in some of the texts of the New Testament. And it includes loyalty to your word and loyalty to your relations. Fidelity. A missing element in our culture except in true churches. Meekness. Proutes. 
It means lenity, a disposition to forbear, to bear, to forgive. What did Moses put up with with the children of Israel after all he had done for them? They didn't know what that guy went through to become their leader. He didn't want that job. And they had no idea what he sacrificed and how many 40 years he was on the backside of the desert in training. Almost lost his neck. And how'd they treat him? Even his sister fell prey to it. And the Bible says he was the meekest man in all the earth. And that's what you see in Moses. It doesn't mean he never lost his head. It doesn't mean he never got angry with them. And sometimes he prayed against them in a couple of cases. But most of the time, and that, and that was not a contradiction to his meekness. But his spirit was to bear and forbear and forgive and even defend them. When the Lord said, I'll wipe them all out, he went to God and said, Lord, don't do it. What are they going to say about you if you do it? Meekness. But in the last place, temperance. Egretia. It means continence. Moderation. And literally, moderation in these three areas. Our estimate, our desire, and our pursuit of worldly good. Moderation in our estimate of worldly good, in our desire for worldly good, and in our pursuit of it. Our estimate, our desire, these things speak to the heart. We're not speaking of something you can stick onto the tree like a few apples and glue them up to the branch and say, hey, I've got an apple tree. This stuff can't happen without the heart. How do you estimate worldly good properly unless the Spirit of God put it in you? How do you overcome a life of worldliness and covetousness and habit and love for things and food and drink and pleasure? The Spirit of God must do it. And He always does it when He saves the soul. There are nobody saved who doesn't have the principle of self-control implanted in him and bearing fruit from him. It goes to the heart. David understood that. In Psalm 51, when David became conscious of the depth of his sin and, and it was able to express it by saying, from in sin did my mother conceive me. That's how far and deep my sin goes. Back to the womb, at the first point of conception, I was a sinner. And in his expression of that, and he says, O oh Lord, Make me to know truth in the inward parts. That's where the sin's rooted. And that's where the, the cure must be applied. The seat of the problem is the heart. And the site of the solution is in the heart. These are fruit because of the root. Self-control comes from the heart. And I want very briefly to excursion, uh, lead you on an excursion on this one fruit. And I have to say, this is a singular word. The fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists these nine elements. There's not eight of these present. There are, all of these things are in some kind are present in every true Christian. This is singular. These are not fruits, and some of them you've got and some of them you don't. This is a singular package. They're the kinds of things that you'll expect to see in a believer, but self-control is the one I want to concentrate on as we come to a conclusion. First of all, the source of self-control. Who it, what's the source of it? 
It's the spirit at work within your heart. Get that straight. The source of it is God at work in you. You'll never attain this apart from fresh supplies of the Holy Spirit, both in the administration of truth to your mind and of dealing with your heart in response. It demands the work of God upon your heart. And brethren, how can you ever expect this to happen apart from prayer? Regular, fervent, frequent cries to God. How can you ever have this happen? How do you expect God to do it if you don't cry to God to do it? The source is the Spirit. And it's to God, therefore, that we must go to see the heart transformed. Some of you have been doing everything you can to change. Except ask. But the second item I want you to notice is the means of self-control. Have you seen the source, the spirit? What's the means? And here's where the balance is. The means is the engagement of our entire redeemed humanity with the spirit to secure the desired result. The engagement of our entire redeemed humanity, body and soul, with all its faculties. The scripture does it not say, If you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. If you mortify. But how do you mortify? By the Spirit. He's the source, He's the power. And yet, you mortify, put to death, therefore, your members. Not I, but Christ lives in me. But the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's this duality here, the work of God within and the constant and vigorous labor of the believer in coordination with him, without which you as well will not see the fruit of the Spirit. You say, Pastor, wait a minute. If the principle's been planted in there, it really doesn't matter ultimately. I mean, it's going to come out. You just said, if the root's there, the fruit's going to grow. How can you stop an apple from popping out on the tree? Stand out there and hold the tree and squeeze it real tight and keep it from coming out. Pastor, you're contradicting yourself. First you say, it's the Spirit, it's the work of God, and when He starts you out right, you'll end up right, and then you're saying, I've got to give my whole redeemed humanity vigorously to this or I'll never attain it. Well, brethren, the Bible's the one that started that. I didn't. But what I'm saying is that if the root of the matter's in you, you will be vigorously laboring with it. Your laziness in refusing to cooperate with the Spirit and blaming Him for not doing it may be evidence that the root isn't in you. On the one hand, you say, I can't do it, I need God. But when have you last spent a whole day doing without one meal so to seek God to put it in you? Well, if I have to do that, then it can't be God wouldn't get the glory. You just go on to the pit of hell and burn and say that. I tell you, my dear brethren, and especially you young men, if you expect to see the evidence of the Spirit flourishing in your life, it's going to take every fiber of your energy to work at it. In spite of the fact that the source is the Spirit. Biblical synergism 
you mortify. But let's look at the substance of self-control. And that this is where we get down to application. Four areas I want us to note. First, self-control, which is present in every true sense, to some degree, which has its source in God, and which means is that I am controlling myself. Isn't it interesting? Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control, I control me. That's evidence the Spirit is in me. But the substance of this thing, what is it? It's four things, I believe. First, self-control is the mastery of the body and its appetites. The mastery of the body and its appetites. Don't turn there so that we may save a minute. But 1 Corinthians gives the classic text, and Paul the Apostle, who was convinced that he to whom he had committed his soul was able to keep it against the day. And yet in that conviction, with that persuasion, said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so side eyes, not beating the air, I'm not sparring with the air, I'm not shadow boxing, but I buffet or bruise my body. I buffet my body. And I bring it into bondage, lest by any means, after I preach to others, I myself might become a reprobate. He brings his body into bondage. And if he doesn't, what's the result? He's cast away. And that's a radical term of rejection by God. The tongue, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the body, your belly, food and drink. Brethren, it is a wicked thing to eat more than you need consistently. And it is not evidence of the glory of God that you continue that way. So if you're overweight, move against it with vigor. And the way to do it is denying the body things that you have learned by training are legitimate to you. Things your body demands, you must say, no! What does it mean to be in bondage? It means that you can't do what you'd like to do. Somebody's got chains on you. It's what you've got to do to your body. You're not going to achieve this unless you do. You're saying, Pastor, do you mean that fat people can't go to heaven? I'm saying that if the Spirit is in you, fatness is a contradiction to your profession and you will be fighting it. We're all different, brethren. We're constituted different. Some of us can eat lots more than others and it doesn't show up. I'm one of those. It's starting to show up. And I'm having to change a life of habit of being able to eat all I want without it showing up. It's not evidence that I've had self-control. It's just that God gave me a metabolism that burns it up better than others. It doesn't make any difference, though, what your particular constitution is. You're responsible to God for your body and its demands and you're not to overfeed that thing, or you're doing just the opposite of bruising it and putting it under bondage. 
And when you get in your 40s and the little thing starts growing around here, don't let it go much longer. And I tell you, dear brethren, it's not a testimony to the power of God in this place for us to sprinkle the church filled with people overweight. Aren't we distinctive? At what point? You say, Pastor Allen, you're not fat, so it's easy for you to say that. You're right. It is. I have to fight some other areas in bodily appetites that are just as difficult as the ones you're fighting. But I tell you, we all better fight and win this. Because it's of the essence of saving religion. The shape of your body says something about salvation and the power of God. Now, am I doing that so that some of you who might be wrestling with this particular thing have to go out with your heads ducked and you're scared the rest of us are thinking of you and we just turned on you? So, <laughs> that's not the purpose. We're not trying to ridicule. But I'm saying it because it desperately needs to be understood, brethren, that this is not an option for the Christian church. Self-control, the mastery of the body and its appetite, sensual pleasures. Your body demands certain sensational experience and you've got to teach it that it doesn't get them when it wants them. Some men are so self-serving at this point that they actually will turn in their hearts against the bride of their youth and the desire of their eyes because they didn't get a five minutes of momentary pleasure when they wanted it. And if this isn't a society that's reeking with that kind of approach, I don't know what is. That embarrass some of you, brethren, that's not my intent either, but I happen to be privy to what's crushing and killing the prayer life of family after family in churches. It's the absence of self-control in the male of this population. Drugs, whether it's sugar or caffeine or nicotine or whatever, if you can't master it, the spirit doesn't dwell in you. I didn't say if you haven't totally, I said if you can't. You can, by the Spirit of God, mortify sin. You must. Don't let us smell tobacco on the breath of a church member in this place. Don't let us try to go home and explain what that was. Don't allow that to happen. And it's not by using good mouthwash, brethren, you stop smoking. Don't kill yourself while we watch and call yourself a Christian. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and sin in these ways. I'm just saying that this is not the fruit of the Spirit. Also, after you've mastered the body and its appetites, you must discipline the mind and its workings. Mental discipline, almost unheard of in America. Let the truth rule in your thoughts. Scripture discipline. Learn the Bible and live in the light of it. That's the task of every Christian. You don't make decisions because you don't know what the Bible says. Find out what it says and don't decide emotionally all the time. Think principled. Also, direct the will and its decisions. You must make decisions based on principle and rational biblical teaching and not on your preference and your desire and providence. You've got to learn to stand against the tide. You've got to learn to do things because they're right, not because they're convenient. You can't live pragmatically. You must live principled, or you're not a Christian. Finally, 
It involves the control of the heart and its expressions. Anger, undue depression in which you continue to bring down everybody around you because you refuse to be comforted by the light of the gospel, that is sin. It's a work of the flesh. Inordinate grief where you go beyond the ordinary expected grief because you like the, the feeling, you like the attention you're getting. You don't want to be happy because that might make you more responsible. And if you can wallow a little longer, people will understand when you don't produce well and don't show up for work on time. Some people have actually gotten themselves grieving this way by losing a girlfriend. And they act like they've, they've, they act like they lost a leg. I mean for years. I'm not talking about the three months of some legitimate disappointment and grief. You say, Pastor, that sounds awfully harsh and uncompassionate. Let me tell you what God told Ezekiel in chapter 24 of Ezekiel. I'm going to take the desire of your eyes away from you tonight. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and your wife is dead, here's what I want you to do. You're not to moan. You're not to grieve. You're not to cry. You're not to sigh. Inwardly, yes, but you're not to let any of it come out. You're to go preach to the people and make this an object. Tomorrow, you preach. And tell them that your wife's death is an object lesson to Israel. The complete control and management of the emotional life in the light of truth is the fruit of the Spirit. We speak a lot to the men here about their sexual appetites. Let me speak to the women about your emotional appetites. Dear ladies, it is a peculiar temptation to you to fall prey to a forgetfulness of truth and to go off some deep end somewhere because of hormones. You must remember that must never be made an excuse for irrational and foolish behavior. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. You must always labor by God's grace in prayer and remembering and disciplining the mind to act in concordance with truth and right and never set yourself up as some sort of martyr to God's creation as though he made a mistake in the way he made you. You say, Pastor, that's hard. I didn't list a single thing here that's not hard, brethren. That's why it must come from God. But I want to conclude this. Your indulgence has been gracious. One more thing. I want to remind you of something. How do you get these things if you don't have them? And see, one of my desires here is, to, is for some of you to go home today with a serious question. I want some of you to go home. I want you to say, wait a minute. I don't see this stuff. That list he just went down, I don't. Pastor, I don't. I'm, I fit the first list. I don't fit the last. I'd say overwhelmingly the first list is more like me than the second list. I want you to go home and consider. Examine yourself that whether you're in the faith. You say, well, is that all you want me to do? No. If you find that the elements of the fruit of the Spirit are lacking and the elements of the work of the flesh are predominant in your life, what I want you to do is not to stay there looking at the evidence. I want you to go back to the source. How do you get the Spirit? Remember? Early in the series, how do you get the Spirit? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't sit so long looking at the evidence of Christ in you that you forget to look at Christ. Don't admire his image so much you forget him. Don't be caught with the photograph of your husband when your husband is sitting next to you in the living room. 
Look to Christ. Pastor, I've done this. Not if the fruit of the Spirit isn't in you, you haven't done it. You're deceiving yourself. Go to Christ and cry to Christ for mercy and then show evidence of the sincerity of that prayer by following up with vigorous application by all your strength to save your soul from this untoward generation by mortifying the sin of the flesh and asking God to fill you not just with the fruit but with the Spirit through whom comes the fruit. Faith in Christ alone, not in your ability to conquer any known sin, but in Christ. Dependence upon Christ alone, not upon yourself. A character and a life which claims to be regenerate must show a restraint on evil impulses generally effective or the claim is worth nothing. Examine yourself. Are you showing a generally effective war against the lusts and the fruit and the work of the flesh? Is there some progress? Do you see yourself liking any of those expressions as they show themselves in your life? Are you adamantly set opposed to all of them? Are you fighting against them, frustrated, grieving, yes, struggling, yes, sometimes falling, yes, but patterns, generally speaking, you are a saint because you know how you view them and you don't welcome any of them and you're right now shooting your arrows at them. Is that you? If not, you have not repented of your root problem. You have seen, the Bible says you have crucified the flesh with its lusts and passions. You don't just go after the individual apples, brethren. You've got to cut the tree down. And some of you have repented against certain sins, but you've not repented at the root of the matter. You've never turned your heart against all sin as a principle. You've not yet repented unto salvation. That's the fear. Some of you may well have fought against this sin when it was preached, this one when it was brought to your attention, this one because of your conscience, this one because of the world, because of the consequences, but you've never seen the root of the matter that your heart is an enemy of God. You weren't born his friend, you've not been his helper, you're his enemy, and you've not humbled yourself at that point. You still, but after mortifying some sin over here in your own strength, you roll out over here another manifestation of the root of the matter because you've never humbled yourself. Examine them and cry to God that he would do such a work by his spirit in your heart that he would make you to speak truth in the inward man. If you deceived us throughout this lifetime and we all smiled as you went to your grave but you never repented in the heart, you'll still perish. You can perish as a good standing member of this church. See to the heart. Look to the heart. The pastor who loves your soul appeals to you. Don't stop until the whole matter is done. Get your eyes off the other guy. Stop your critical spirit. Quit condemning somebody else. And look at your heart. And beg Christ to renew it and transform it. If he could ever do anything, brethren, he could do that. There's ample evidence in this place for that. Where you see a lack of it, you get after that at the foot of the cross and see if God is not true to his word. The fruit of the Spirit. 
is evident in those that apply to the source. It'll come. May God give us grace that this whole church will be filled by increasing measures of evidence that God is in us of a surety. Let us pray. Our Father, in my own life, I pray that these matters will be so driven in that the people of this church would never legitimately be able to say that they see me as a contradiction to what I've preached. And, O Lord, would you let all of us in this congregation and all who would be added to us in the days ahead bear such a sanctified countenance resulting from your Spirit's work in us that the world would have to reckon with changed lives. Forgive us, O Lord, for all the ways that we have conjured up excuses to allow the continuance of certain things that are listed in your book as contrary to your work of grace and cause us in the inner man to come forth speaking truth and dealing with righteousness. Lord, we know that everything we've said would send into despair anyone here who plans to try to do this himself. And we confess, Lord, that we ourselves do not have any simple secret formula and often we wish we did we confess again that you have made promises to those who come to you humbly and we've asked O Lord that you would grant the fulfillment of those promises by stirring each of us to pursue Christ that we may find him true to his word Lord give to us the spirit of grace give to us the fullness of that spirit and make the manifestation of the power of Christ clear in this place increasingly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.